Whoever said you can't go home hasn't met Marty Kleinman. The Bronx-born storyteller returned to his home borough after spending several decades in Queens, Manhattan, and Brooklyn. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Marty Kleinman is out with a new collection of short stories called A Shoebox Full of Money, inspired by his life in and away from the Bronx. He joins us to talk about it. Marty, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Well, thanks for having me today. So you are born and raised in the Bronx. Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in the uh, the Tallentine area, University Avenue, Fordham Road, right around there, University Heights. What was the neighborhood like when you were growing up? It was down at the heels. It was, uh, you know, hard scrabble. Everybody was scuffling to make a, make a dollar, put food on the table. Um, you know, the, the dads worked for the railroad or for the daily news on the shipping dock or, uh, you know, something like that. No, there were no doctor, lawyer, Indian chiefs in that neighborhood. Everybody was pretty much, you know, going week to week. Where did you go to school? So I made the rounds on uh, Reservoir Avenue, PS 86. Then I went to junior high school, 143. Then I went to DeWitt Clinton High School and then to Lehman. You went to Lehman College for your undergrad work. Lehman, Lehman College, right. Um, you know, when I, when I entered there, it was Hunter College, and then uh, it magically transformed to Lehman College about a year and a half after I got there. Did you study writing back then? No, I was an economics major, psychology minor, and um, actually it was a dual minor, I was, um, also English. But, uh, you know, writing was not on the, was not on the horizon. Uh, in terms of uh, vocation, I mean, nobody was a writer. You had to think about something, you know, practical to make a living, as the saying goes. When did you decide, hey, I want to be a writer then? I kind of backed into it. Um, I always liked to write, and I always was pretty facile at it. But like I said, it was never something that I was going to make money at, at least initially. What happened was that career bounce after career bounce led me to understand that one of my strong points was communications, be it oral or written. And so in the slow, steady progression from the 60s to 70s to 80s and beyond in terms of a quote career, I found that I was most successful when I was, when most of the work I was doing was written. And so one day I got a job from and these are the days when they had uh new york times want ads <laughs> and i cut it out and it's seventy five hundred dollars a year woohoo to write little ads for a direct mail company on 19th street and i got the job at the time i was living on 21st street so the commute was real tough it was two blocks down this down the street down seventh avenue and from there, it was one writing job to another. It was uh, working for a newsletter company in the automotive industry where I was cranking out two newsletters a week. It was about 4,800 words a week. So the volume built up. Then I segued to the public relations sphere because from writing about cars as a reporter, then I went to the other side, the dark side, and did public relations for automobile companies. And then from there... I went on to one PR job after another. And finally, I got to a point where I actually had time for my own pursuits, and that was doing, finishing the stories that I was collecting in shoeboxes. And then, of course, it went from a literally a shoebox, then the electronic age came, and then it was 
a word processor. So I had all these stories in a word processor, and I finally started to make it happen. You have another collection of short stories called Homefront, the collection. How would you say this book of short stories differs from that book? I would say in, the, in a baseball metaphor, that one was AAA, and this one is the big leagues. Um, I, you know, in retrospect, I, I, I read those stories, and it's pretty much great similarities. New York City, in both of the books, New York City is a central character, in a sense, of the book. But in terms of the quality of the writing, in terms of my you know, ability to express things and, uh, and have a narrative flow, the new one, Shoebox Full of Money, is a little bit more accomplished, in my opinion, than the, although I have great fondness for the stories at home front. But the content's the same. It's pretty much taking, it's, it's simultaneously a time capsule of New York City and a, and a, a treasure map, a path forward. Because if you understand New York City is all about change. It's always in, in it's always in flux. So if you see what was going on, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you can pretty much predict now that we have, you know, post not 20 years past 9/11, and now we're going to hopefully pass COVID at some point. There's going to be more dynamic changes down the road. So maybe the cautionary note is don't get too freaked about what's happening now because we're resilient. We bounce. We, we make it, we're like cats. We land on our feet. At least a couple of the stories in this book reference the 9-11 terror attacks, including the opening story, the tape, and Kingdom. How would you describe the impact of that day on you as a native New Yorker? You know, the neighborhood I grew up in was like the neighborhood my dad grew up in, in the sense that, um, you know, you didn't talk about PTSD. If you were in a football game and you got dinged, you, you know, walk it off. And you just didn't think about it, and you just, um, you know, moved forward. And um, with the passage of time, I could see that. I mean, even though I was not down at, uh, on Ground Zero at that time, I was uh, across the river in Brooklyn at the time, and I saw it from the rooftop. And we all did, and we all lost, in that neighborhood, which was close to the financial district. We all lost neighbors. So to answer the question, I mean, I, I definitely suffered from PTSD from that. Um, it freaked me out for years. I, I swear, to, I mean, this sounds really funny, but every morning for about three years, I went through every minute of that day in my mind before I could actually buckle down and get to work. I thought about from seven o'clock in the morning, what did I do to the time I went to bed that night? And I, and and until I was able to finish that consecutive schedule, I couldn't, I couldn't free myself to do work. And that lasted for like three or four years after it. It was like, you know, really, it was like working with my hands, with my brain tied behind my back. <laughs> In the story, the tape, your protagonist goes to see a psychologist, a psychologist that he refers to as the world's littlest shrink. Did you yourself seek out a mental health professional during this time? Yeah, I did. And, uh, and uh, you know, and it was like equal parts uh, relief and shame. You know, but that's, that's like, I mean, my whole generation is like that, you know. It's like, you just, you didn't do that. that. That just was not done. You brass it out. Why the world's littlest shrink? Give us the story there. <laughs> It's, I mean, I thought it would be a good device because, because 
the protagonist didn't really want to admit the deficiencies that he had and the power that the shrink had to unlock these bombs. And so if you treat the shrink in a, in a diminutive sense, then you're kind of like leveling the playing field psychologically. But the reality was the, the shrink by just like sitting there, like, you know, with her elfin little fingers twiddling the pencil, you know, she, she was able to um, elicit from him all of the bad stuff and, and draw the, you know, draw the poison out. It was almost like um, a psychological version of leeching, <laughs> you know, just pulling the poison out. As I mentioned, the story Kingdom also makes mention of the 9-11 terror attacks. Can you read an excerpt from that story? So as we're going to cut into the story um, Kingdom, and it's just after the attacks. Giuliani told New Yorkers to carry on, come into the city, shop, dine out. David and Debbie tried it not long after the attacks. The subway was not running well. Against their better judgment, they decided to drive. It took hours for what was usually a 20-minute trip from Brooklyn into Manhattan. There were police checkpoints on Adams Street, on the Brooklyn Bridge, and throughout the city, pinching traffic to a standstill. They finally crossed the bridge to Manhattan. Stopped at the red light near Park Row, they took stock of their city. Every wall of every building was plastered with homemade flyers written by loved ones. Theirs was now a city on its knees, a city that collectively begged for updates on an impossible legion of lost souls. David and Debbie bawled like babies right in their car well after the red light turned green, and for once, no one honked. David made a U-turn south of Chambers Street and headed back over the bridge to Brooklyn. A cop pulled him over. Debbie pushed a button, and the car's tinted window whooshed down. The cop peered in, saw their grief-swollen faces, and waved them on with the faintest of finger flicks. The following week, Debbie worked from home alongside David, but after a few days, she called a supervisor to see it was okay to come to the office and pick up our belongings. She was told to stay home. She hung up and turned to David. I need to get into my office. This time, David and Debbie took the subway. The train sat for 15 minutes at Clark Street, the last stop in Brooklyn. No announcements, no explanations, and none were expected for delays with Derrigur in the weeks that followed the attacks. Without warning, the subway light the subway car lights went off, then on. Then the train finally lurched forward at a tortured crawl through the tunnel far below the murky East River. Finally, Manhattan. At the top of the street level staircase, they stopped short, breathless from the chemical stench. It was overpowering, toxic, burned concrete, rubber, humanity. I don't know if I could do this, she said. The dust atop the fences, the lights, the mailboxes, a deadly white snow, the crushed cabs, frozen in situ, ashes now upon David's black Borsalino hat. Bulky barricades everywhere, American flags fluttered from coffee shop awnings, police cars, fire trucks. Across from a stock exchange, a helmeted guardsman in a Humvee stood silent sentry, his hands upon a mounted police uh, machine gun. His partner, posted on the corner, had his automatic weapon at the ready, his head swift, swept left to right, a human turret. Tourists clustered, a middle-aged couple in matching tracksuits and Velcro mall walkers, maps in hand, approached David and Debbie and asked directions to Ground Zero. David stood silent. Debbie started to shake. 
then cry. Sheesh, the necro tourist muttered. He waddled away, his tubby wife in tow. 20 years, 20 years have passed, but wow, those memories are just so vivid, huh, Marty? I mean, I remember that day, like, in, inch by, second by second, inch by inch, from start to finish. It's, it's crazy. And so many people, you know, it's always young people coming to the canyon in New York City. There are people that are here now, and it's just, you know, it's history. It's a, it's a history book. They don't know. They have no idea. You mentioned that you went to DeWitt Clinton High School, and one of the stories in the book refers to DeWitt Clinton as a feeder school for Rikers Island. Is that how you saw it back then? <laughs> uh, actually, that was, that was a phrase that came to me years later. Um, when I was there, uh, I was just trying to make it through every day. My greatest accomplishment um, from those days at David Clinton was I never got mugged, never got hurt, and I graduated. I mean, that was, the bar was very low. That was it. And it was because, you know, for me, I, I was in the, I was in various accelerated programs in the New York City public schools in that era. And so I was two years ahead. So when I got to Dwood Clinton, it was, it was all boys, which is euphemistically all boys. It was all men. And then there was me. <laughs> I was, you know, 13 in, a, in a, a group of, you know, very, very big guys. And it was a little bit daunting, to say the least. That reference to DeWitt Clinton High School comes in a story called Kenny Swam the Hudson. What would you say this story underscores specifically? You know, when people think about New York City from other parts of the country, they think about the, um, the, the museums, the, the, the social life, the cultural life, and they think of it in very um, highbrow terms oftentimes. The, what people don't understand from other parts of the country is that it's a very bifurcated society. It's the people that live in the high rent zip codes and everybody else. And the proportion is probably like 85 to 15%, but the power is in the 15%, is in the top of the pyramid. There's so many people here that, same as when I was growing up in the, in the Bronx, that, you know, trying to make it through the week, trying to put food on the table. And the, the distance between the rich and the poor was always staggering. In the Upper West Side, you could go from 94th Street to 96th Street, and it's the difference between doormen building and, you know, tenements with rats. And it was mind-boggling, and now it's so much worse. You include some pretty grim references in your stories about what the Bronx was like in the 1970s, including the mention of an old lady who was tortured and thrown out of her living room window into the courtyard. Those days were pretty dark, weren't they? Yeah, it was... Um... You know, that's what, I mean, that's what kills me is that you, you hear a lot of stories about uh, people that are relatively new to this city and, and they're, you know, so they know about CBGB days and all of that. And they look at the, you know, the old like Ouija-esque type uh, graphic uh, photo, news photographs of uh, the Redbird subways and they're all marked up with graffiti and they go, oh, that's when New York City was real. That's when New York City was not dis disnified. And, you know, there's a, there's a part of me that says, yeah, it's great that it's not so much crime and the streets are cleaner, but 
it was scary back then, day in and day out. You'd be riding the subway home from a night job, and the door to the subway would fly open, and these gangbaggers would come in, and you would just say, so is this the day I get killed coming home from work, you know, just trying to get home? Um, so, yeah, it was real, all right. It was really real. Too real. Can you take us back to that time period by reading a little bit of Kenny Swam the Hudson? So uh, we're going to cut into the story where uh, a group of high school graduates are um, making their plans to go into uh, City University of New York and, um, and you know, uh, start the great adventure of their life. And one of their friends was not home in time to start the registration process. So this is where we are in uh, Kenny Swam the Hudson. We waited and waited for Kenny to return to join us at school. And then we waited some more. Somehow, we had all survived three years at Dewa Clinton, the all-boys public high school that was Sparta to neighboring Bronx Sciences Athens. Clinton, the feeder school for Rikers Island, we joke. Well, all of us somehow made it through. And in fact, we excelled in an environment where achievement had no currency and the only failure only failure assured acceptance into the fraternity of men. That's what happened back then when you were a smart but lousy test taker or otherwise distracted. If you somehow didn't make Bronx Science or one of the city's other ultra-competitive specialized schools, you ended up in places like Clinton. That is, a world where kids shot dope in the bathroom, punched their principal, and rioted regularly. But to our credit, we few, we happy few, somehow kept it together, maintained our class averages, excelled on our SATs, ripped through our regents, and earned those big fat acceptance letters that meant the chance for the type of career still possible in the go-go 60s. Acceptance to one of the tuition-free New York City universities was, for us second-generation kids of working-class native New Yorkers, an all-expense-paid ticket to the U.S. middle class that, for a time, powered the world's consumer economy. So in the glare of the late June sun, we ripped off our ties, walked home from graduation ceremonies at the Lowy's 175th Street Theater, and the very next Monday, launched into the summer jobs that would pay for registration, books, and spending money while we were full-time students. But not Kenny. Ever the dreamer, the exotic, he was the only one of us to forego a summer of work. Yeah, there's plenty of time for that, he, he said after graduation, running a hand through his wavy hair already longer than ours as we sifted through the backpacks at Joe's Army Navy store. I'm going cross country like Kerouac. We expected nothing less from Kenny. True, he went to Clinton with us, but Kenny lived with his family in Fortress Riverdale, high atop the terminal moraine west of Broadway in the Northwest Bronx, up where the swells lived. Fortress Riverdale to us urchins from the careworn Bronxy Bronx, was revered as heaven on earth. We could only imagine daily life upon those hills. There, we figured, there were no pushing burglaries or car thefts or purse snatchings. In Fortress Riverdale, junkies didn't hoist themselves up dumbwaiters and break into your apartment and toss your belongings. In Fortress Riverdale, apartments were toasty warm in winter, and no one need bang on the bedroom radiator with a wrench, a violent signal for the super to turn up the heat. In Fortress Riverdale, people had wall-to-wall carpeting, not throw rugs, circuit breakers, not 15-amp fuses, and frost-free refrigerators, not ancient igloos. In Fortress Riverdale, kids got braces, 
piano lessons, ski vacations. Parents didn't fight. Car batteries didn't die. Sick pets were taken to the vet. Success was both expected and assured. So, yeah, we love Kenny, but we understood that in the big circus of life, Kenny was working with a net. You spent 25 years in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Would you say you fled the Bronx for Brooklyn? Is fled the right word for it? I didn't. It wasn't so much fleeing. It was pretty much a logical progression. You know, there were, it was very, very, you know, there's an old movie, I guess, from 1980, Breaking Away, and it had to do with, you know, um, a Midwestern boy who has to come to terms with, you know, cracking off and starting the great challenge of his life and maybe leaving the old guard, the old friends and the family behind. And that was pretty much it. I had a sense somewhere in me that I want, I wanted to strive for bigger things. And my neighborhood was very comfortable, like an old pair of jeans, but, but the aspiration level was so low and it, I, it infuriated me. Some of my friends were so smart and they just settled for so little and they just, they just could, they got no traction. They didn't make it happen. And I was like, you know, I'll be damned. I'm going to, I'm going to try for it. And I, and in the, where I lived at that time, it was not going to happen. I had to, I had to pretty much reboot. And that's, that's what happened. But yet you're back in the Bronx today, aren't you, Marty? It's really weird because I look out my home office window and I see the, um, I see the Dollar Savings Bank building, which is four miles away. But I, I, I see it. And I see the Kingsbridge Armory, and I was, and I see the Veterans Hospital from my office window, and I'm like, that's where I used to play. <laughs> so it's very, very, it's very, very strange. And when I came back after 25 years, it was like people said, "What do you think?" I said, "You know, it's the same, but it's different. It's 25 years made a big difference. I mean, the borough changed a lot, a lot for the better, and um, and also made me appreciate more some of the." good things about the Bronx that always were there and never left and, um, and, and how any neighborhood can evolve and, and come out better. What inspired you to return to your home borough? You know, all, all neighborhoods changed when I left the Bronx, the Bronx was, um, was definitely um, a place that was not for me anymore. And there's a place in, there's a place in your life, of each stage and Brooklyn at that particular time got so different. It was not the balanced uh, rainbow coalition, hippy dippy ish uh, place I moved to in 1985. It became all uh, uh, financial services people and uh, you know high net worth individuals with dripping with entitlement. And I think there's I think there's a pl there's a place in the world where you live that's too dangerous and there's a place that's too affluent. Hindsight, though, can be a killer, especially when it comes to buying real estate. And that's evident in reading this book. You say Manhattan brownstones could once be purchased for the current price of a Mercedes Benz. Isn't that the truth? Right. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. And now it's. We're talking, you know, price of the, you know, entry price four million and up in some neighborhoods. Crazy, it's absolutely insane. 
And then you look in Manhattan and there are, you know, ghost buildings that, uh, you know, it's all, you know, offshore, you know, Russian oligarch money on 57th street, that big spaghetti box apartment house, uh, you know, on across on uh, central park South. It's like, not occupied, but it's all, you know, high net worth individuals and nobody lives there. I love the story in the book about Bess Meyerson, the first Jewish winner of the Miss America pageant. How much creative liberty did you take with that story? A lot. <laughs> uh, but it was, I mean, it was interesting because there was, um, when I moved back to the Bronx, so there are a lot of interesting people here. And I was talking to an a, a an older lady in the neighborhood, and she was explaining to me how in the Sholem Aleichem uh, apartment houses, not far, you know, just maybe a mile or two from where I am now, um, she described the scene where Bess Meyerson had won Miss America contest and strode across the courtyard, and everybody was so happy and screaming out the window because she was their hero. And I, it just clicked, like that, well, that's going to be a story but everything else is like totally creative license. I mean, I have no idea what went on in that household, but uh, but I hope you enjoy that story anyway. I, lo- I mean, historically it all fit, but in terms of the interpersonal and interfamilial dynamics, that's all fabric of my imagination. The title story, A Shoebox Full of Money, is all about family drama. How often do you discover that family drama is what's at the root of a story. 100% of the time. <laughs> I mean, when when a person deals with family drama, you talk to other family members and you say to yourselves, I can't believe this is happening, blah, blah. But the reality is you could throw a stick and hit anybody on the street and their family is this, going through similar stuff or worse. You just have to scratch a little bit. I mean, this is the core of human existence is the the stuff that goes on behind closed doors. I mean, and everybody's got their drama. Every, every family has their drama, for better or for worse. Was there really a shoebox full of money, or is that something you created? Actually, there really was a shoebox full of money. It was, it was just, the core of the story was loosely based on my grandmother, and my aunt Rosie, her sister, and there was some kind of a falling out. And, you know, when you're a child and you hear the family arguing and talking about old things that happened in the past, and you don't really, you can't really synthesize exactly, you know, what, who, who's telling the truth, who's, uh, you know, enhancing um, the story. But I remember it. I remember them arguing about the shoebox full of money. So, you know, decades later, I just invented this whole scenario. And, um, you know, it's all greed, uh, fighting over money. Every family's got a story about that. One of the stories in a shoebox full of money includes mention of a Cuban singer, La Lupe. Was she a favorite of yours? Um, Actually, she really was. Um, You know, one of the biggest um, disappointments of my life I, I never had the guts to go to all of the Latin clubs, like on 86th Street, like they used to. When I was in high school, all of the kids used to go to all you know, like the dance clubs. Like uh, there was one on 86th called Corso. And they had posters all over the place, you know, Corso, who's going to be there? All the big acts and La Lupe and Celia Cruz and all. 
And I never had the guts to go. And the reason was because I didn't know how to dance Latin. And I figured, and I didn't, my clothes, I had, I had like a jeans and fry boots and, you know, flannel shirts. I had like no clothes. And those places, people got dressed up, like seriously dressed up. So I wouldn't have looked good there. I couldn't have danced. And, uh, and I didn't have the money for the entrance anyway. But, uh, but I, I was in retrospect, like, oh, I would have killed to go to a place like that. That would have been so exciting. How much storytelling have you been doing throughout the pandemic? How much writing have you been doing throughout the pandemic? The story that I started last fall about, was about COVID, and it has to, it has to do with uh, a Brooklyn couple, fairly affluent, and they decide to uh, just pack it all in and go up to, uh, you know, Hudson Valley. You know, that's, that's what people are doing now. And, uh, and they have run-ins with the locals and chaos ensues. And I'm, I was going along at a great clip and um, it just came to a grinding halt. The, the, the tumblers are still spinning. I, it, has to, it has to solidify in my mind what's exactly going to happen to these people. And I have a feeling it's not going to be good. To be continued. But meantime, we could read all of these great stories in a shoebox full of money. Right, Marty? Anybody who is either once lived here or wants to live here or is currently in residence in New York City will recognize a lot of the scenarios and a lot of the characters, and it will resonate. So I think you'll get a kick out of it, especially Cityscape uh, listeners will definitely get a kick out of this book. Marty, thank you so much for your time. You bet. Thanks a lot. You can learn more about Marty and his work at martykleinman.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thanks so much for listening.